What are the parts of covenant theology? And the answer is, the covenant of grace is the most important part. So in this second lecture, I'd like to answer the question, what is the covenant of grace? If you have your notes there, right above the the title, the theme of scripture, you could put a large heading, the covenant of grace. I should have written that down and I, I didn't. I should have made that a large heading there and started a new page there. So the question is, what is the covenant of grace? Or in other words, which is the same thing, what is covenant theology? Here it is. Covenant theology is the kind of theology or the kind of way to look at the Bible. That's what it is. Start right there. What is covenant theology? It's a way to look at the Bible. Don't be confused. Don't get bogged down. Uh, There are several ways to look at the Bible. This is a way that godly Christians have looked at the Bible for hundreds of years. Well, how does this way differ from the other ways to look at the Bible? What exactly is the covenantal way of looking at the Bible? And the answer is, the covenantal way of looking at the Bible arranges or puts in buckets or puts on shelves or puts labels that have to do with the works and words of God as arranged under eight covenants. Did you follow that? Covenant theology is a way of looking at the Bible through the covenants. There are eight of them. Now, now follow this. They're listed there in your notes. Do you see all eight listed in the notes? But, but here's the problem with the eight that are listed in the notes. This is on page two. Here's the problem with the way the covenants are listed on page two in the notes. Do you not have those? There it is. Here's what's unique about the eight covenants that make up covenant theology. The first three are not mentioned in the Bible. So there are three covenants that are all used in covenant theology. And the first three are not mentioned in the Bible as covenants. So what are we going to do with that? We have arrived at those three covenants deductively. That is, we looked at all the verses... And we made some logical conclusions. And then we put a label that is not in the Bible. You can see those in your notes. The first label is covenant of what? The second label is covenant of what? And the third one is covenant of? So there's redemption, works, and grace. These are the three covenants that are not mentioned in the Bible. But that allow... Someone to use these three covenants as glasses by which to interpret almost all of the verses of the Bible. They see the Bible then as a big story. And the story of the Bible is viewed most clearly through these three covenants, but especially the third one, the covenant of grace. In fact, a number of authors will say the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace are the same thing. And the covenant of works, we're about to see it, that's only important because 
is like a little brother supporting the covenant of grace. Let's jump into these. The central doctrine of covenant theology, or CT in your notes, the central doctrine is that all of Scripture is one story of one people of God. You can underline that there on page two. One story, one people of God. Perhaps this theological idea was first put into words by Ulrich Zwingli. Listen to this quote from James Wiley. Quote, Zwingli had been compelled to study the relation in which the Old and New Testaments stand to one another. And he came to see that under two names, they are one book. That under two forms, they are one revelation. What are the two names and what are the two forms? Old Testament and New Testament. So Wiley is quote, I'm quoting Wiley, who's summarizing Zwingli. Wiley wrote 300 years after Zwingli was alive. Wiley is looking back 300 years and he's saying, Zwingli read Old Testament, New Testament. How many parts? Two. Zwingli read a book with two parts and he said, wait a minute. It's actually not two parts. It's actually one story. It's not two different forms. It's one book. That's what Wiley is saying that Zwingli did. So in 1527, Zwingli wrote these words, quote, The same covenant which God entered into with Israel, he has in these latter days entered into with us. Oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. The same covenant of Israel? That sounds like the Old Testament. Zwingli was saying in 1527, 496 years ago, Zwingli was saying the Old Testament that was given to Israel, that same, there's the word, you're going to find it everywhere. That same, you remember that. When we talk covenant theology, in your mind, you think of a little equal sign and the word same. That's the key right there. Zwingli just showed it to us. 496 years ago, he said, the same arrangement as Israel is the one we are in. Well, why does that matter? He tells us. So that we may be one people with them. Israel and us. Adam and Mugobe. Caleb and Abel. Ruth and Colin. Seth Myers and Micah the prophet were all in the same group. One church. And we may have also one covenant. Ah, one covenant. Wait a minute. I thought the Bible is titled Old Testament, which really means covenant. And I thought the New Testament meant new covenant. That sounds like there's how many covenants? But he's telling me we're actually all in what? What would that mean if I did that? What if I read the whole Bible thinking that it was the same? Remember, what's the key word I told you to think of? Same. Disam. Zinofanana. Let's just keep that in our minds the whole way through. The nation of Israel and the church experience a remarkable sameness. 
The church is continuing the work begun by Israel. The key words are sameness and continuing. Underline those words. And on top of these two words, add these words. Continuity, relation, unity, similarity. Do you see those half a dozen terms that I just gave you? Generally speaking, that bucket of synonyms gathers up the whole substance of covenant theology. When you read Jeremiah or Job or Kings or Chronicles, when you read Numbers or when you read Zechariah, you should be thinking, that's like me. That's like our church. If you're following the glasses of covenant theology, or if you're following the the storyline of covenant theology, if you're wearing the glasses of covenant theology, you're going to say same, single, unified, continual. Those are the glasses that they are telling us to use. Look down this. At its most basic, a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. That's the Westminster Shorter Catechism for Children. So then who are the parties of each of these Covenants. Well, before we go any further there, look down at footnote number six at the bottom. Michael Horton writes, quote, The covenant of grace is uninterrupted from Adam. Do you see how uninterrupted is emphasized? That was me emphasizing that. What does he say? It's uninterrupted from Adam until the present, which means Adam was in the same group we were in. Adam was a member of a Baptist church. That's what Horton just said. Same group. Next, Randy Booth, quote, a smooth and organic continuity. What does the word continuity mean? Well, he'll tell us. A smooth and organic continuity that leads to a renewed and expanded Version of. Of what, Mr. Booth? Essentially the same covenant. Did you see that word same? Well, thank you, Mr. Booth. You know what I think I'm going to tell you? I'm going to encourage all of you to use the word same to identify covenant theology. Wait, I just told you that. Do you see? It's their own authors who are using those terms. Uninterrupted. Continuous. Same. Single. Unity. Don't change. There's another one here in the notes. Louis Burkhoff writes, quote, The summary expression of the covenant is the what throughout. The same in what? Both in the Old and New Testaments. Exactly. So covenant theology, and I could multiply those examples. I stopped at three. But I actually had more books on my desk And I could easily put more. Even this one that I was reading just tonight. Oh, Palmer Robertson. Same thing. It's the same. Because covenant theologians, they may disagree on some things, but they agree with this. The word same. The word similar. The word continuous. That's what we should think of when we think of Old Testament and New Testament. And you know what? One theologian said it's really a shame that they say the word old. He said, instead of the word old, we should say older. And instead of new, we should say newer. 
Because that reminds us that it's basically the same thing that was just a little bit older. It's the same. It's on the same track. Don't, don't, he's trying to say, this was Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson was saying, do not think of Genesis to Malachi as something different. Think of it as the same, it's just a little bit older. And then the, you got the same thing, but it's, it's a little bit newer. Sameness. The great idea of covenant theology is similarity. If you remember nothing else from this first lecture, what is covenant theology or what is the covenant of grace? Here's what you need to remember. Sameness. Similarity. Keep it going. Don't change. The way I like to think of it is like this. In my mind, I picture a man walking through the Old Testament. He walks through the forest in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then he walks up a bit of a mountain with the historical books. And then he comes to a pathway through a plush garden with the poetry. And then he comes to the prophets and it's got some more trees again. And then suddenly at the end of Malachi, he stops short as he steps out of the trees and in front of him, there is a massive cliff falling down and he doesn't know how he can get across, but then he looks way over there and he sees a totally different landscape. It's totally different. As if you'd gone from a kind of forested area to a totally unique plush grasslands. And he looks down at the chasm in front of him and says, how can I get over there? Now, what I just presented to you is what you must never think if you're going to understand covenant theology. To understand covenant theology, you just, as you walk through that path and you come out on the forest of Malachi, the path just keeps on going without even a change in the texture. It doesn't slant uphill. It doesn't slant downhill. There's really no difference. In fact, you barely even know that you've changed from one to the other. If there wasn't someone telling you, call this one different, I might not even know it's different. Is that too strong? Let's see. Page number three, the covenant of redemption. This is the first of the eight covenants. In the timeless wonder of eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit communicated and conversed with one another. That's found in Hebrews chapter 10, quoting Psalm 40. The covenant of redemption, some of the communication of that covenant was included right there in Psalm 40. It's in your notes. When he comes into the world, he says. So someone is talking. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Oh, someone is talking to someone who's listening. And the person who's listening did something for the one who's talking. They've got an interaction. They've got a relationship. There's a talker and a listener and a preparer. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you take no pleasure. So the one who prepares and the one who listens, he has affections. He likes some things and he doesn't like other things. 
Then I said, Behold, I've come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. Oh, so someone wrote it down like a recorder. Someone recorded what the speaker is going to do. And someone planned what the speaker was going to do. And someone prepared the speaker. There's a group here. And what does the speaker say? I'm coming to do your will, O God. So the speaker is addressing God. And it is God who's prepared for him and recorded for him. This is called the covenant of redemption. It is the eternal counsels kept secret in the infinite mind of Father, Son, and Spirit. I wonder if we will be allowed to see any more of that when we go to heaven. I am confident that the beauties and wonders and comforts are more delicious than any meal we've ever tasted. The sound of their voices in that covenant would be like violins that you cannot imagine with a background of pianos and brass. It would be the deepest voice and the highest, sweetest sound. It would be a combination of music and water running down a brook. I don't know if God will ever reveal more of the covenant of redemption for us, but we know it's there because we see it. And we also have statements about it. Look down here. What agreement did they make amongst themselves? Number one, they would create a world. Number two, and then there's cross-references for all of these. They did all of this according to their will, according to their plan. You can read the references at home. They would create a world, number one. Number two, they would allow it to be entirely befouled with sin. Number three, they would send the son to be born of a virgin. All of this is according to their will and according to their decrees. Number four, they would crush, they would crush him on the cross in the place of sinners. Number five, they would raise him from the dead. Number six, in answer to his most perfect prayers. Then number seven, they would save all the ones that they had previously chosen. Now, number eight, they would regenerate them. And number nine, they would unite them to Christ by the Holy Spirit. Number 10, in this permanent bond, they would never lose the ones they had chosen and saved. Number 11, each of them will most certainly be in a heavenly eternal choir for this goal. Number 12, to exalt the free grace of the Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity. Now, all of these concepts can be wrapped up in a single term. What term is it? Remember, a term can be more than one word, but it's a single concept. What term wraps up all those 12 categories? The covenant of redemption. Now, there's no phrase in the Bible, covenant of redemption, but there is that Hebrews 10 and Psalm 40, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. And where it's positioned in Hebrews tells you how important it is. So there is actually a reference to an agreement between multiple persons for this kind of saving work. And then there's a dozen or more references from Old and New Testament that refers to the things that they've done according to their good counsel and decree. Paul refers to this when he says in Titus 1 verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, 
which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. Who was there long ages ago when God was promising? Only Father, Son, and Spirit. To whom was the Father promising? There's a hint at it again. It's hinted in other places. I've listed those in the next paragraph. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Acts 4, 28. Romans 9. So covenant theology believes the covenant of redemption is the right label to place on these verses. But covenant theology has more. It has the covenant of works. You remember, look back on your chart on page 2. Covenant of redemption, covenant of works, and covenant of grace. What is the covenant of works? In the Garden of Eden, the covenant of... Covenant theology finds a second set of parties in a second agreement. They say that God speaks to Adam and gives him the responsibility to tend the new garden and a single prohibition, do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So man must not eat from that tree. So the parties are God and Adam. But all mankind coming from Adam is involved in Adam's sin because Adam sinned and it falls down on all of us. So we're bound up with his guilt. He is our representative. He is our head. They'll use this word federal. It means he stands for us. He's the one taking my place. So in the covenant of works, they say... Adam stood up for all his people. Now, the covenant of works has come on some hard times. People will call it by many different names. Uh, This guy, Palmer Robertson, calls it the covenant of creation. Some guys call it the covenant of life. Others call it a covenant of grace. Because they say, well, covenant of works, that, that sounds too much like works salvation. And we don't want to say God ever does anything with works salvation So let's call it, how about we call it a covenant of grace and the covenant of grace. Well, regardless, they still have this idea. Here's the idea. Adam has to earn salvation by perfect obedience, or he can earn death by breaking God's law. That's the options. It was a temporary arrangement because only a few verses after the command is given. What does Adam and Eve do? What do Adam and Eve do? They break God's command. So in time, it's a very short covenant. And they'll say that's important that it's a short covenant because it's really not powerful. It can't save. It's only there as a teaching point. Galatians 3.24, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, they'll say. So the covenant of works is a label that needs to be in your room. Remember, what's the title on the door outside? God's word, my final authority. And then underneath that, in all capital letters, you write the word covenant. And then when you step inside the door, you say, wow, what kind of labels should I put in these? You say, well, on one shelf, a really big shelf, put the phrase covenant of works. Or you can call it covenant of life. Or a covenant of grace. Or covenant of creation. But make sure you've got a shelf for this. And all of the commands and all of the works and all of the laws in the Bible, you put on that shelf. Do not kill. Put it on that shelf. Honor your father and your mother. Put it on that shelf. 
is honoring your father and your mother believing in Jesus Christ? No. Then put it on the shelf. It's a work. You're basically going to find two things in the Bible. Law and grace. And if you can rightly call it law, then put it there. Well, but I don't feel good about that. Because if I say do not kill is law, but now I'm under grace. All right. That's why you call it covenant of works or a covenant of grace or covenant of life or call it something. But make sure you got that shelf. You're going to look at the Bible and every time a man has to do a thing, you put it on that shelf. That makes sense. You're going to be reading your Bible. You're going to read in the Old Testament and it's going to say, bring a tithe. What shelf does it go on? Good works. Covenant of works. Put it up there. Anytime you find something that's not free, sovereign, unmerited grace, where do you put it? Covenant of works. Today's terminology, they like to say, put the imperatives on the covenant of works and put the indicatives on our next shelf. And so that's the shelf we need to come to right now. We're going to come to covenant of grace. But before we get to covenant of grace, let me make a few more comments about the covenant of works. Because with the possible, this is the top of page four, with the possible exception of Hosea 6, 7, that's where Hosea says, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Now that word Adam might not mean Adam. It might mean man. Because Adam and man are the same Hebrew word. Just like Adam named his wife woman, Adam was the first man, and so that became his name. His name was man. Munna. Wanuna. Adam's name was man, and woman was female him. So this Hebrew word in Hosea 6, 7 might be translated as, but like man, they have transgressed the covenant. Or it might be, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. (coughs) And many covenant theologians, i.e. Palmer Robertson et al., (coughs) they like to argue that this covenant is a clear reference to the covenant of works. The only problem is it's not clear. And if so, it's the only reference in the entire Bible nestled away in Hosea. So, do we really need to have that? Well, since 1646, the Westminster Confession of Faith was completed and the phrase covenant of works has since then enjoyed popularity and authority as a biblical lens through which to view the scripture. They now say we can use covenant of works. So covenant theology sees the parties in the agreement As I've just mentioned. So God takes the initiative to talk to Adam. So then the Mosaic law, the covenant of works, comes throughout the Bible. And it's synonymous. Underline this in your notes. It has become synonymous with a religion based on works. For example, look at James Usher right here in your notes. Here's James Usher from the time of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Here's what he writes in his systematic theology. Quote, Declare now out of that which hath been said what the covenant of works is. Modern English. Can you tell me what the covenant of works is? 
Here's his answer. It is a conditional covenant between God and man, whereby on the one side, God commands perfect godliness and righteousness and promises he will be our God if we keep his commandments. And on the other side, man binds himself to perform entire and perfect obedience to God's law by the strength wherewith God has endued him by the nature of his first creation. Wow, that sounds like works salvation, doesn't it? Is there any reference in that answer to a sacrifice? Is there any reference to the cross of Jesus? Any reference to failure or sin? No, maybe a little reference to failure. Hint at it. This is works salvation. So covenant theology says you've got to have a place, a shelf in your room, and it's marked marked covenant of works. Because this covenant emphasizes works, yet the scripture teaches justification by faith alone. Controversy has dogged this term for many years. But you'd better be careful. If you raise objections about the covenant of works, you get your shield up. Because if you object to the covenant of works, they are going to say some harsh things about you. Look at the footnote. Daniel Fuller, who is a covenant theologian, raised some objections in his book, Gospel and Law. Contrast or continuum. Do you see that? Contrast or continuum? What is the story I just told you? You're walking through your path and suddenly you come to a cliff. That's contrast. How are you going to get across this contrast over there? That's contrast. A big problem. That's the half title of Daniel Fuller's book. Or maybe it's continuum. It just keeps going. There's no break. I just keep walking on. Which one is it? Daniel Fuller asks. Look at the title of his, of his book. Gospel and law. There are the two covenants. Covenant of grace, that's gospel. And, coven- and law, that's covenant of? Right there. So Fuller says, hey, let's just look at this now. I'm a covenant theologian. Don't get angry at me. But I'm going to look at covenant of grace. I'm going to look at covenant of works. And I'm going to ask myself. Is there really a big cliff or is it really continuous now as soon as he did that robert raymond comes along behind him and says this fuller has departed from sola fide of the reformation close quote wow i've got the book you can read it in its context raymond really does say that dan fuller has left sola fide because he calls into question the existence of the covenant of works Why would you do that? Look at the next paragraph on page number four. Is it important to the system of covenant theology to have the covenant of works? Do you have to have that? Well, here's Wayne Grudem. He asks and answers the question in systematic theology. Why is it important to use the words covenant of grace? Here we go. Answer. Why should we use it? Because it helps us to see the clear parallels between this And the subsequent covenant relationships God had with all his people. Close quote. So, the most important covenant that's coming up is the covenant of grace. So, Grudem says, we've got to keep covenant of works so that we can still see the covenant of grace. So, that tells us this. Covenant of works is most important because it supports the covenant of grace. And that gets to what I already told you. The most important thing about covenant theology is the covenant of grace. If you take out the covenant of grace, you have taken out the whole of theology of this particular way of looking at the Bible. 
If you have this, then you have the substance of this particular theological view. You have the system if you've got what? The covenant of grace. And to that, we turn our attention now. Okay, you've stepped inside your, do- your room. And on the door outside, you've got a label, God's word, my final authority. And underneath that, what word is written? So when you step inside your room, you've got all the shelves. One shelf for sure has to be covenant of works, covenant of works. Then you've got another shelf. It's going to be very big. And it's on that shelf is going to be covenant of grace. What would we do with that? No one who has read the Bible should suggest that all the verses could fit in the covenant of works. You know there's verses about Jesus dying for sinners. How would that fit on the covenant of works at all? That's not man-made religion. That's not works-based religion. What would you do with that? If you put on the door outside, man saves himself, then a lot of Bible verses can never come inside the room. They never get inside the room. If on the door it's marked, man saves himself. But that would fit for covenant of works. Man saves himself. That's why the covenant of works didn't work. So we're going to have to move on to the covenant of grace. And then when we move on, what do we come to? We come to the covenant of grace. So wearing the covenant of works glasses, you will see that God arranged with Adam and his children that if they offered obedience, he would be their God. If they did not obey, they would be lost. So in scripture, however, we see grace and mercy and kindness hundreds of times. So that's why we need the covenant of grace in order to understand. So covenant theology says this, God initiated a second covenant with man. You can find it clearly referenced in Revelation 23. No, this covenant, like the other two, are not listed in the Bible. You're going to have to deduce them from cross-references. Do you see that we did with covenant of works? They read the Bible and they found, especially Luther, he's reading through and he's saying, law and grace, law and grace, law and grace. I'm justified by faith. What am I supposed to do with Moses? Zwingli comes along and wonders the same thing. Now I've got Zwingli and Luther wondering, what do I do? They have other factors pressing on them as well, which we'll get to eventually. When we talk about politics, there was a lot of political pressure pressing down on Luther and a lot pressing down on Zwingli. And that certainly influenced those men in their theological conclusions. So they decide, just like we were reading the Bible, we found a covenant of works. We're going to read the Bible. We find all these verses about grace. Why don't we call it a covenant of grace? In this agreement, God offers salvation to sinners on the basis of trust in Jesus Christ. Their works are always insufficient because not only are they constantly sinning, but they also have their inherited guilt from Adam. So Jesus' perfect obedience on the cross can be counted to their account. By faith, as if it was their only possession, as if they owned it. This is page number five. So notice what the Westminster Confession says. This is very important. Look at the top of page five. The Westminster Confession says God promises, quote, to give to all those that are ordained to eternal life, his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. Two sections later, the confession links the Old and New Testaments. And I want you to see these words and underline them. 
This is section seven, chapter 7, sections 5 and 6 in the Westminster Confession of Faith. See if you can find the words that are important before I tell you. I'll read them. Section 5. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Did you catch it there? It's the lack of a single letter. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Number six, under the gospel, when Christ, the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance. Underline that word substance. But one and the same under various dispensations. What words in those five and six are vital and they will be vital for the rest of our study? Not different. Substance in section six, one and the same. So you can underline the word not. There are not, underline not. And then two, not two. In number five, paragraph, uh, section five, this, it doesn't say covenants. It doesn't say covenants. It says covenant. Wait a minute. We've got an old covenant and a new covenant in our Bibles. In fact, Jeremiah says there's an old covenant and a new covenant. Hebrew says there's an old covenant and a new covenant. The night before he died, our Lord picked up the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant. But when he said new covenant, he really meant that one that's been here for thousands of years. That's what they're saying. That's what the Westminster Confession of Faith is saying. We are going to use their words. And I trust if they are listening or reading, they will not become tired. But to be very safe, I am going to say repeatedly over and over only their words. Now, I'd like to use other words like essential, basically, generally. But I'm, I'm going to try to stay away from those words. And I'm just going to keep saying same one and substance, because they put it. Do you see that there? Substance, not two substances. How many substances? One. So you've got you've got these two things that the Bible calls two covenants, but they're saying, oh, oh. When you read your Bible, you've got to realize, don't be distracted with phrases like old covenant and new covenant. Look at the substance of the old covenant. And if you'll look carefully with good logic, they even put that in their Westminster Confession. They said, we believe to be true whatever the Bible reveals or whatever must come from good and necessary consequence. That's the exact phrase. Good and necessary consequence. What does that mean? We believe whatever the Bible says and also we believe good logic. Why did they put that in there? Because the phrase covenant of grace is not in the Bible, but we really, really need that for our system. 
It's essential to our, or it's substantive in our system. It is the substance of our system. Our whole system is built off this one principle, covenant of grace. But since covenant of grace isn't listed, then in our confession, we're going to have to say, we believe all the words, praise the Lord, because what do you have on the outside of your door? God's word, my final authority. But if you're going to use these glasses, you're going to have to put underneath that in capital letters, the word covenant. And maybe just keep going, just write covenant of grace. That is essential. Now, when they say covenant of grace, what do they mean? Well, we just saw it in number six. We mean sameness. When you hear covenant of grace, I've already told you this, but I'm going to keep repeating it. Think same substance. Think one big essence, one main idea. When you look at the Bible, do not think Israel, one idea. Church, another idea. Don't think that. Think one big idea. That's the key of covenant theology. When you come to the Bible, you do not think two big ideas. You think one big idea. And the big idea you're going to think is going to bind up both of those sections or administrations or dispensations. So the times of Adam, Noah, Moses, and Charles Spurgeon represent different administrations, but all these times and whatever differences they may have had actually represent only one, what is it? Covenant. Underline this. This is absolutely essential. I've already said it, but we'll say it here in a different way. The similarities are more to be spoken than the changes. Did you follow that? Now, if you change those two words, you have an entirely different kind of theology. One theology says, look more at similarities than changes. Change the word similarity and change in that sentence. Try it again. Look more at the changes than the similarities. Do you see what's happened? You've got an entirely different way to look at your Bible. And I'm presenting the covenant theology method of examining the Bible. And I'm asking you, can we do it consistently? And Lord willing, when I'm done with tonight's lecture, I'm going to try to, in future weeks, show 10 other areas. And we're going to take covenant similarity and we're going to go right into other areas. We're going to go into religious practices like baptism and the Lord's table. We're going to go into the church. We're going to go into politics. We're going to go into the law. And we're going to see if we can use the same law, the same politics, the same religious practices. And we're just going to consistently do what they did right there in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, sections 5 and 6. We're going to hold them accountable to be consistent. And we're going to try to walk as well. And we're just going to walk down the path and see what's going to happen if you are consistent. And there are some people who are consistent. And we're going to walk on that path as well and see what would happen. Well, all of this unity and similarity, when you read the Bible brings us about to one people of God because there's one covenant of grace. We all know that Israel is the people of God and we all know that the church is the people of God. The big question is, 
is that two peoples are one people? That's the big question. Covenant theology is going to say there's one people of God. That Israel and the church are bound up with more similarity than difference. That's the key. Is there more similarity or is there more difference? Let me just say right now, and I'll say it a number of times more. Covenant theologians do allow for differences. But in the kinds of quotes that I've given you tonight, have you seen much difference? We're going to go forward and I'm going to show you some more. But they may from time to time reference differences. But it is not an important part of the system. It is a minor part of the system. And another way to look at the Bible believes that there are similarities. But in that method, again, the similarities aren't very important. The main thing is the differences. So if you're going to look at the Bible and you're going to see similarities, how can we do it consistently? Well, let's just look. In the Old Testament, this group was commonly called Israel by the prophets. In Micah, for example, the heading of a Cambridge King James Version reads over chapter 6, quote, God's controversy with his people for ignorance, etc., close quote. And on that page, that is a Cambridge Bible, the Bible I've got right here. If you go to the book of Micah, you're going to find that the heading written by men says God's controversy with his people. But look in the passage and it will say, because the Lord has a case against his people, even with who? Israel. Israel. So now we've got a designation of who the people is. Who is this people? It's Israel. And the next phrase, chapter 7, that is Micah chapter 7, has this heading at the top of the Cambridge Bible, quote, the church's complaint and her confidence in God. Whose confidence in God? The church's. Who wrote those words? Men. Men in this, in this Bible, not in, the, not in the inspired text, but in the headings at the tops of the chapters, it's marked. The church's complaint. Wait a minute, this is the book of Micah. I thought the church came in Acts chapter 2. Wait a minute, did the church come in Micah 7? Or did the church come 600 years later when the Holy Spirit came down? Well, this Bible written by men, that is the headings of this Bible say, when did it start? 600 years earlier, or maybe, maybe earlier than that. In fact, why not? Why did it start with Micah? Why didn't it start with David? If David, why not with Samson? If Samson, why not with Joshua? If Joshua, why not with Moses? Why not with Noah? Why not with Adam? Was Adam the first Baptist pastor? He must have been, according to this perspective of looking at Scripture. He must have been. In fact, repeatedly, I don't list it. It's not difficult to find in the literature. Repeatedly, they will speak of the church in the Old Testament. The first church or the church that was then over and over. It is a common designation because that is the system. We don't want, I've really done my best to present the strongest possible version of this theology. Because number one, I'm a Christian, so I want to treat the work honestly. I hope that if there was a covenant theologian sitting here, 
He might not like it if I disagree, but I hope he would say, as far as my representation of the theological position, I hope he would say, yes, that's, that's well said. That is what we believe. He may not agree if I come to critiquing, but I hope he would agree that I'm accurately representing what they believe. These headings in the Cambridge Bible are consistent with covenant theology because God is speaking literally to his people, Israel. The children of Jacob, Abram's offspring. And in a simple act of unification, that means that the church is substituted. So as the people of God, the promises given to Abraham apply to the church. But I want you to note that if the promises given to Israel apply, then what else applies? The curses. If the promises apply, then the curses need to apply as well. And not just the curses, but the traditions and the laws and the threats and the political structure, or at least something from the politics. If God planned one covenant of grace to unite all of his saving actions from Adam to the last member of the last church, then reading the Bible is a single-minded adventure. You're just going to have to focus from Genesis We should expect to see direct parallels for the New Testament church. So what do we see in Genesis 2? God rested. What does that parallel with today? Sunday. Yes, but that's not... God rested on Saturday, the seventh day. But there's a parallel. It's same. Well, but it's God and not Adam. Parallel. Don't tell me about the differences. Don't tell me it was God resting and not Adam. Don't tell me it was Saturday and not Sunday. Don't tell me that Jesus hadn't come. Don't tell me that the Holy Spirit hadn't come. The point is we focus on the similarities. That is the focal point. So they would say Genesis 2, 1 to 4 is obviously a picture of the Lord's day since the church meets on that day. Circumcision in Genesis 17 is given to children of believers then. So children of believers should get something today. In Genesis 17, 12, the children of believers were marked. So we need to mark children of believers today. That's literally the argument. Or that's a portion of the argument. That is a part of it. But you could say, can can you think of some differences between Genesis 17, 12 and today? Only the boys were marked. Yes, they would say that's one of the differences. But there's not a lot of talk about the differences, at least not in my reading and study. Because the similarities are the great thing. So yes, yes, of course, back then it was only boys and now it's boys and girls. But let's not, we don't need to focus so much on that. We need to focus on sameness. You're going to be tired of me mentioning sameness, but it's really going to be important in all of the coming 10 categories because it really is that principle of sameness, that principle of starting the Old Testament and don't focus on the difference. That is the issue that is going to carry you straight through this entire rest of the study. Same thing with tithing. Genesis twenty two twenty eight. The church members should tithe because Jacob did it. If Jacob did it, why shouldn't we do it? He was a church member. Same thing with prophetic promises of paradise that were given to Israel are now applied to the church. Why? If, if paradise was promised to Israel, then why isn't it talking to the church? Well, it is talking to the church. Flip over to page six. Let's just see some examples. 
I've just, in the text here, on page 6, I've just put the words of Isaiah 2. And then I've added some of my own comments. But do you know where I got these comments from? I got them from John Calvin's commentary on Isaiah. And you can find these comments. You can defend these comments from John Calvin's commentary. Look at this. Isaiah 2, 1 to 4. The word which Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2. It will come about that in the last days, my comment that I got from Calvin, after Jesus has ascended to heaven. Okay, all right, maybe. Next phrase. The mountain of the house of the Lord, my comment, which is the church. Calvin mentions it three times with a capital C. It's the church. Will be established as the chief of the mountains, will be raised above the hills. All the nations will stream to it. My comment, a multi-ethnic church. I've got it from Calvin. I'm not picking on Calvin here. Many, many commentators talk this way. Verse 3. Many peoples will come and say, my comment, church growth. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, church attendance. Skip down. For the law will go forth from Zion. Calvin's comment. Missionaries will be sent from the church. Calvin says, teachers will be sent out of the church to all the world. Can we call them missionaries? Why did he say that? Look in verse 4. He will judge between the nations by reforming the church. That's Calvin. Calvin uses the word reforming the church. He says that verse 4 is a mandate for the reformers to do what they were doing. Because God will judge the nations by reforming his church and allowing his church to be the judges and the justices. In fact, in the comment on verse 4, Calvin even says... Don't let anyone foolishly say that the, that the church should not have the sword to execute criminals. He says that in his commentary. That is, Calvin is explaining Isaiah 2 verse 4. And he says, when it says, um, he, they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning sh- hooks. They will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they learn war. Calvin put in his commentary on that He says, now some people will foolishly claim from this verse that churches should not be able to put to death criminals. But of course, that's not what it means. When churches are able to put to death criminals and also preach the gospel, then all the world will become peaceful. I'm not picking on Calvin here. I'm simply saying, if if your, your hermeneutical idea is sameness, why wouldn't you do that? Why would you not do that? If it's all the same, then when you read Isaiah, don't hear Israel. Say the church. You hear Mount Zion, Jacob, every one of those. Any kind of Jewish reference, cut it out. Christian, church, New Testament. Isaiah and Jeremiah have about a dozen more passages like this. Ezekiel has many The minor prophets have these. Zechariah has whole chapters like this. The Psalms have many of these. And Psalm 72 is probably the best example. And now our question is, should I go to all of those passages in the Old Testament? And every time should I say, same. Whatever it says in the Old Testament, I know that it's the same thing as is happening today. Should I do that? Or should I be walking through and say, whoa, there's a big gap. 
the other five covenants. I've took, taken this entire time to talk about the three covenants that are not mentioned in the Bible because in my reading, that is how the, the literature handles it. And I just challenge anyone to go do the reading. I'll put all of these in a bibliography and I've got the footnotes here. But it's actually not difficult. You can look in the index to many systematic theology books and you'll see they don't deal much with the Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, Mosaic covenant. There's very little talk about those things. In fact, Robert Raymond, who is an excellent systematic theology, Robert Raymond has no pages that I could even find on the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but he has over 20 pages on how they're the same, starting on page 503. So he decided, I've got to have a long time to tell everyone that today, 2020, or I think he wrote his book in 2008, somewhere around there. I've, Robert Raymond said, I'm going to have to make sure everyone knows what we're seeing today in the 20th and 21st century is the same. I'm going to put 20 pages in my book to tell you how same, similar we are. And as far as I could find in the entire theology, there was not a page. There may be a reference from here and there. Maybe. I didn't find it, though. But there's no sections that deal with, oh, it's different. By the way, it's interesting also, in many systematic theologians written by covenant theologians, there's very little written about the new covenant. Just go to their index. You'll find almost nothing on the new covenant. And if you go to passages like Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8 quotes a longer amount of the Old Testament than any other place in the New Testament. And it's quoting the new covenant. And most of the systematic theology, well, that I checked, from Calvin's Institutes to John Frame, to um, Raymond, Grudem, Usher, a couple others. The systematic theologies that I checked that were written by covenant theologians, oh, oh, Burkhoff, of course, overwhelmingly, they did not mention the new covenant. Or if they do, it's just a passing glance. Oh, of course, the new covenant, yeah. So when the New Testament uses those terms... They're still saying that we're just the same. The new covenant's not, nothing new. It's the same as what we've already seen. So in summary, here it is. Covenant the, number, let me give you five ways to summarize this. Number one, covenant theology views the whole Bible through the lens of what? Covenant. Number two, the main covenant that binds all believers together is what covenant? The covenant of grace. Covenant of grace. Number three, the covenant of grace is basically a synonym for true religion, for the one true Christian religion. Number four, all other biblical covenants, such as those given to Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, are simply the same in substance as the covenant of grace. And I, I use the exact words they use in their confessions and in their writings. The same in substance. Number five. So here's a conclusion. So on numbers one, two, three, and four, I basically summarized the whole position. I don't think a covenant theologian could disagree with that, although I'm tempted to email this to some friends and ask them, did I miss anything? Because I do not want to misrepresent. We want to see it for what it is and then take that consistently through 10 more categories. Number five, our conclusion. If the covenant of grace is the label for most of scripture, then we should expect to find religious practices, laws, political structure, 
and earthly focus today that are the same in substance. Do you see those words? We're looking for the same substance, right? Whatever the political structure is, then I want the same substance. It's the same substance. Those are the terms. Then give me the same substance of law. And there are people who do it. There are Christian covenant theologians who say exactly, we want the same substance legally. Let's talk about that in a few weeks. Some say we want the same substance with our practices. We want baptism for babies. We want communion for babies. We want a church that is same in substance as the Old Testament. Calvin believed that. Zwingli believed that. We want an earthly focus today that is the same in substance as the Old Testament. So that's what we want to ask. We want to ask if the covenant of grace is true, then what will happen if it is consistently applied? Any questions?